We are in Advent, the moment before the moment. Season of great hope and great excitement and great anticipation. Uh, not because Christmas festivities are just around the corner, but those, those are good. I enjoy the Christmas festivities. Uh, but because we're celebrating with Joseph and Mary and with Elizabeth and Zechariah and with Anna and Simeon and with all of those in Israel who discovered that hope did not disappoint, that hope did not let them down. At just the right moment, Jesus entered to the story, entered into the story. Simeon put it like this when he meets Jesus. He said, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon had this, he felt like God had spoken to him, that he would see the Messiah, he would see the promised one, he'd see the Saviour. And then he, and then he, Simeon literally says, "Now I can rest in peace." And that's where the "rest in peace" saying comes from. Uh, that bit might not be true, but that's more or less what Simeon's saying. You can dismiss your servant in peace. So we're counting down to that. So we, we celebrate firstly that Christ entered the story. Uh, secondly, we acknowledge acknowledge that we need Jesus to turn up in our lives today. I don't know about you, but I discover all sorts of things happening in my life where I feel like I don't really need Jesus to show up. They're going quite well, and then every now and then I hit something. I'm like, "Whoa." Jesus, it would be really good if you could show up in this situation, in this moment. Now would be good. And then we discover we enter a season of waiting there with anticipation and excitement and hope and longing. And that our time frames are not always the same as Jesus' time frames. But we, we wait for Christ to come in our lives today. And then there's this third waiting. We acknowledge we're waiting for Christ to come again. To turn up and to set this world right. We have this hope that Christ will return and all things will may be made well. But we're in the moment before the moment. We're not there yet. We're waiting. Waiting in hope, but nevertheless we're waiting. And waiting is good for us. Patience is good for us. Paul writes this in Colossians. He says, therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, he says, clothe yourselves with compassion. Uh, with kindness. With humility, yes, absolutely. With gentleness, I mean. And he says, and patience, and with patience. Oh, compassion, kindness, gentleness, humility, yes, but patience. Seriously, patience as well? Yeah, patience is something that is good for us. It's a virtue, it's an admirable quality. Uh, it's a commitment to the process, not just the outcome. I don't know about you, but I like the outcomes, and sometimes I don't like the process so much. But patience is learning to commit to the process as well as... The outcome, the journey, not just the destination. Uh, a commitment to walk at the pace of others, not just to run at the pace that you can run at. I don't know if you've ever had that. It's, I feel like I could run, but everyone else is walking. Ah. Bushwalks, we went on youth years ago. We went on this bushwalk up in the Coromandel, and one of the girls uh, got about halfway and she said, I'm done! I'm done! And uh, she said, Just leave me here! <laughs> she sat down in the middle of the track. She said, just leave me here. You guys go on. But of course, like, as youth pastors, we're like, well, we pretty much want to do that. Uh, but also pretty much know that that's the one thing that you're not allowed to do. <laughs> I'll be fine. I'm like, yeah, probably will be. You can't run ahead. You've got to walk at the pace as the slowest person in the group. And patience calls us to do that sometimes. It's a virtue. We'll come back to this in a moment. So we're in the line of the witch in the wardrobe. We're diving in and out of this story as we count our way or, or journey our way for Advent. Early in the story, more earlier in the story, Lucy meets Mr. Tumnus. 
And she asks about the white witch. She says, the white witch, who is she? Why? It's she that has got all of Narnia under her thumb. It's she that makes it always winter. There you go, we've got music. <laughs> Next slide. Next slide, Romeo. Don't worry about the music, buddy. There you go. It's she that has got Narnia under her thumb. Always winter and never Christmas. She says, think of that. Always winter, but never Christmas. We've still got Narnia music. <laughs> we don't need Narnia music. <sighs> All right, we'll turn the Narnia music on when I read the big bit in the middle. Gosh. Always winter, never Christmas. Never the celebration of Christmas. Never the gift of Christmas. Never the joy and the wonder and the delight of waking up in the morning and there's a stocking at the end of your bed. Uh, of course, Christmas is in summer for us, but in a northern hemisphere context. Always winter, but never Christmas. Gosh, it would make winter frustrating. You know, what's the best thing about winter if you live in the north? Christmas! Especially a white Christmas. But we've kind of got that, but we don't have Christmas. It's not ideal. Never shift from the darkest of dark into the dawning of a new light. Christmas is aligned with winter solstice, this, this dawning of the new light where it begins to grow brighter on the other side of Christmas. The days have got short, but now they're going to begin to get longer because Christmas marks the change of season. Theologically, never the coming of the sun, Jesus, the dawning of new possibilities in Christ. He says never think of that. Always winter and never Christmas. It's a sense of hopelessness. As well, it's she, the white witch, that has got Narnia, all of Narnia under her thumb. That's not ideal either. All of Narnia under her thumb. The white witch is a symbol of the corrupt and imposterous rule of sin and death. Narnia is Aslan's kingdom. And all will be set right in due course. But in the present, the white witch is taking prisoners and enslaving nature and turning people into stone, destroying Narnia. That's not ideal either. She's the very one that has got Narnia under her thumb. It's Lucy's first introduction to the white witch. But then Edmund travels through the wardrobe to Narnia and he counters the white witch as well. Uh, of course, the title she gives herself is not, Hi, I'm the white witch. Uh, she sees herself as Her Imperial Majesty Jadis, the White Queen of Narnia, Empress of the Lone Islands, uh, Charlatine of Clare Paravel, which means the Keeper of the Castle. And Clare Paravel, that's how she sees herself. And she introduces herself to uh, Edmund. Cue the music. But what are you, said the Queen again? This is to Edmund. Are you a great overgrown dwarf that has cut off his beard? No, your majesty, said Edmund. I never had a beard. I'm a boy. A boy, she said. Do you mean you're a son of Adam? Edmund stood still, saying nothing. He was too confused by this time. You can play the music if you want. <laughs> he was too confused by this time to understand what the question meant. I see you are an idiot, whatever else you might be, said the queen. Answer me once and for all, or I shall lose my patience. Are you a human? Yes, your majesty, said Edmund. And how, pray, did you come to enter my domain? Please, your majesty, I came in through a wardrobe. A wardrobe? What do you mean? I, I opened a door and I just found myself here, your majesty, said Edmund. Ah, said the queen, speaking more to herself than to him. A door, a door from the world of men. I have heard of such things. This may wreck all, but he is only one and he is easily dealt with. As she spoke these words, she rose from her seat and looked Edmund full in the face. 
her eyes flaming. At the same moment she raised her wand, Edmund felt sure he was gonna, she was going to do something dreadful, but he seemed unable to move. Then just as he gave him out, himself up for lost, she appeared to change her mind. My poor child, she said in a quite different voice, how cold you look. Come and sit with me here on the sledge and I will put my mantle around you and walk with you uh, and talk with you. Edmund did not like this arrangement at all, but he did not disobey. He stepped onto the sledge and sat at her feet and she put a fold of her fur mantle around him and tucked it in. Perhaps something hot to drink, said the queen. Should you like that? Yes, please, Majesty, said Edmund, whose teeth were chattering. The t- queen took something, uh, took the queen took from somewhere among her wrappings a very small bottle, which looked as if it was made of copper. Then holding out her arm, she let one drop fall from it on the snow beside the sledge. Edmund saw the drop for a second in midair, shining like a diamond. But the moment it touched the snow, there was a hissing sound, and there stood a jeweled cup of something that steamed. The dwarf immediately took this and handed it to Edmund with a bow and a smile. Not a very nice smile. The dwarf, uh, Edmund felt much better as he began to sip the hot drink. It was something he had never tasted before. Very sweet and foamy and creamy, and it warmed him down to his toast. It is, is it dull, son of Adam, to drink without eating, said the queen presently. What would you like best to eat? Turkish delight, please, your majesty, said Edmund. The queen let another drop fall from her bottle to the snow, and instantly there appeared a round box tied with green silk ribbon, which when opened turned out to contain several pounds of the very best Turkish delight. Several pounds is like 1.8 kgs. That's like a lot of Turkish delight. Uh, The very best version, though, not the stuff we passed around, but who knows where you get good Turkish delight from. I wouldn't have a clue. But anyway, 1.8 kgs of Turkish delight. Each piece was sweet and light to the very center, and Edmund had never tasted anything more delicious. He was quite warm now and very comfortable. While he was eating, the queen kept asking him questions. At first, Edmund tried to remember that it's rude to speak with one's mouth full, but soon forgot about this. And his only thought was of trying to shovel down as much Turkish delight as he could. And the more he ate, the more he wanted to eat. And he never asked himself why the queen should be so inquisitive. At last, the Turkish delight was all finished. 1.8 kgs was all finished. And Edmund was looking very hard at the empty box and wishing that she would ask him whether he would like some more. Probably the queen knew quite well what he was thinking. For she knew, though Edmund did not, that this was enchanted Turkish delight, and that anyone who had once tasted it would want more and more of it, and would even, if they were allowed, go on eating it till they killed themselves. Enchanted Turkish delight. Oh, there we go. End of story. Cut the music. Enchanted Turkish delight. The Turkish delight was a test. You weren't meant to eat it. How many passed the test? A couple. All right. Okay. Gosh. Enchanted Turkish delight. Every good story needs a baddie. Uh, of course, you know, you can't have a good story without a baddie. Darth Vader, the Joker, Hans Gruber, and obviously the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe needs a baddie as well. The White Witch. Lewis isn't just following the convention of regular storytelling, though. It's not, it's not like, oh, we need a baddie, we better, we better put a baddie in, and he kind of comes up with the White Witch. He's making a commentary on the reality of this life, this world that we live in. This world that is so often under the thumb, I guess you could speak, of the corrupt and imposterous rule of sin and death, principalities and powers that so often shape the world that we live in. 
These things that in our world are forever offering us tasty delights that promise to tantalize and titillate, but ultimately only end up stealing and killing, destroying. And uh, we see that kind of picture in the Garden of Eden. So Lewis is kind of making this commentary back to the Garden of Eden, but kind of making this commentary on the world that we live in as well. There are so many things that the principalities and powers offer that this is going to, this will totally satisfy you. Get as much of this as you can kind of thing. But in the end, it only steals, kills, and destroys. This is the fruit that you need to eat. This will certainly satisfy. Or this thing, or that thing, or the other thing. This will make your dreams come true. Uh, will finally allow you to relax in life, to be confident in life, to be on the top of your game. You haven't been on the top of your game for a while, but once you buy this, buy it for yourself at Christmas. You, you deserve it. Get this for yourself at Christmas. You'll be, you'll be on the top of your game. You can, you'll be secure around others once you get that. You'll be able to fit in. These things that supposedly taste so good but ultimately never satisfy. The only thought Edmund had was to keep on shoveling down as much Turkish delight as he could. The more he ate, the more he wanted. He didn't realise that given the chance he would keep on eating it until it killed him. The corrupt and imposterous rule of sin and death, of principalities and powers. It's always winter, but it's never Christmas. All of Narnia under the thumb. Principalities and powers. What are principalities and powers? They're essentially they're realities, they're objects, they're ideas that are a part of God's good creation that over time have been inappropriately empowered. You could, you could say enchanted, like the Turkish delight was enchanted. Realities within this good creation that over time have been empowered to the point that they are idolized. Uh, and when enough people start to idolize something, orientate their lives around something, essentially you could say worshipping something, these things start to take on a life of their own, start to take on a power of their own that they were never supposed to have. I mean, the easiest examples of this are to, to talk about things like sex and money, uh, good and necessary parts of this world that we live in, but two realities that are so easily empowered to inappropriate places of authority in our life. But then when enough people start to do that kind of collectively within our culture, within our society, within our world, these things become false gods that they were never meant to be. Uh, they have sway and dominion and authority that they were never meant to have. You look at most of the ancient cultures, they have God of sex, they have gods of money, they have gods of war, they have gods of alcohol, they have gods of all these different things that collectively we empower to have authority in our lives that it was never meant to have. And now enchanted or empowered, we suppose that the more we can get our hands on these things, the more that we can get our lives lined up with these things, well, ultimately, that'll the more satisfaction, the more fulfillment, the more, more we'll be at peace in life. Edmund's unaware that it's the Turkish to life and would eat himself to death if he could. So often we're unaware that, that that pursuit of money or that pursuit of sex or that pursuit of power or that pursuit of promotion or that pursuit of trying to fit in or that pursuit of trying to stand out or, or whatever it might be that we've discovered is the thing that we supposedly need to give our lives to in order to feel at peace. You give your life to that, but eventually it will steal and kill and destroy and undermine you, but you don't even necessarily realise what is happening. Now, of course, Turkish delight, generally speaking, isn't going to be a principality and power that you and I have to deal with, if we're honest, uh, unless Turkish delight is the name of some 
foreign princess. But uh, the actual candy is not going to be something that we are going to have to deal with. Uh, and sex and money are obvious things that we know we need to steward with care and with discretion and with discernment in our lives. But might, be there, might there be other things less obvious that promise so much but deliver so little? It's quite possible that we're gobbling up some marketer's carefully curated product pitch, thinking, yes, kingdom come. But in reality, we've been sold enchanted Turkish delight masquerading as a false salvation, a false promise of satisfaction. It could be anything. Like I said, it could be the promotion. If I just get this promotion, it'll be amazing. I don't know what you've thought through for you in your. If I just get married, then honestly, kingdom come. And anyone that's got married discovers, oh, it's awesome. It's awesome to get married, but doesn't there's still? Oh, I didn't. Man, that didn't really fix everything. Brought two people's problems together, kind of. Thing. <laughs> or you think, ah, oh, I know for me, if I just finish once I finish the doctorate, honestly, I'm in this thing. It's been hanging. You know, I mean, don't get me wrong. It was a good feeling to finish the doctorate, but you discover on the other side, it's like. Yeah, it's just still the same person. There's still there's still longings and there's still inadequacies and there's still insecurities. Oh, I thought that would take it all away. No, oh, it doesn't. It doesn't kind of work like that. Once I own the business rather than just work in the business, then yeah, then I'll. I mean, then I'll have some kudos kind of thing. You end up owning the business. You discover it's like sleepless nights, all the stress. You're responsible for everything rather than just one area. All these sort of things that we, we get sold this narrative, this story of if you can just tick that box. You'll know peace. It doesn't work like that. Advent is an invitation to consider the possibility we might be on the Turkish delight without even realizing it. It's an invitation to ask some questions. In my life, what am I waiting for? What am I excited about? What, I, what am I thinking is going to satisfy? What am I getting out of bed in the morning to check at the letterbox to see it, if it's arrived yet? Because once, once that arrives, oh, what am I waiting on? What am I counting down to? Advent's a season to ask ourselves those kinds of questions afresh. Now, we all know what the right answer is, especially in Advent. We know the answer that we're meant to say when we ask those kinds of questions. I'm waiting for Jesus to show up in my life. I'm waiting for the Christ of Christmas to bring hope and peace and joy and love. That's the main thing that I'm really just dreaming about in my life. I mean, that's the right answer to say in Advent. Uh, but sometimes it sounds less convincing than a Miss Universe contestant. You know, my great hope, if I win this competition, is to bring peace to all the children of the world. And you're like, seriously? Your great hope if you win this competition is to marry an NFL quarterback or a hip-hop artist. It's like, you know... It's easy to uh, read between the lines. It's easy to say, my great hope is Jesus. He's the reason for the season. I know that's the right answer. I know that, yes, you've just passed the Sunday school test. But is is that really what's bubbling away in the deeper places of your life? Easy to say Christmas is all about Jesus, but really you love holidays and eggnog and moaning about Snoopy's Christmas on the radio and traffic to the mountain kind of thing. That's what you're really looking forward to. That's alright though. Because we're in Advent. We're in the moment before the moment. And this waiting period is a chance to reconcile, to revisit, to realign those hopes and dreams and aspirations and go, oh yeah, these might have kind of 
drifted off course. I need to, I need to bring these back into alignment. It's a season of waiting and counting down, of learning to walk in hope and patience. And patient waiting has a unique way of reorientating our lives. Patient waiting has a unique way of reorientating our lives. If you're a parent, or well, you can probably remember from your own childhood, you know the fascinating way that during the countdown to Christmas, the kids' wish lists, they just they amazingly kind of change and evolve as, as we get kind of closer to Christmas. I just want a bike and a handball and new shoes and a wallet and $20. That's, that's the only things that I'm dreaming about for Christmas kind of thing. You're like, okay. You know, they come at you. You're like, oh, yeah, get a mental note kind of thing. And then they, you get home from work the next day or, or mum gets home. Mum does the Christmas shopping in the house. They're like, mum, 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 I hope you haven't brought the gifts. I hope you haven't brought the gifts. I've changed my mind. I've changed my mind. I don't want those things here. I just want money. I just want the cash. Not just $20. Put all of it in cash. It's all about the Benjamins this Christmas coming. And you're like, oh, okay. All right. They get home from the school the next day. And they're like, mum, I hope you haven't done the Christmas shopping yet because I don't just want cash. Because that would be a bit boring on Christmas Day. I want half cash and half one good present kind of thing. So you need to, need to mix it up like that. The kids, they just they change their minds all the time as you get closer and closer. You know, don't buy the first thing they ask for. It's the last thing they want. Changes again and again. You notice finally they tend to land on something. Mostly they kind of tend to land on something. And you do get a sense that, that that's the thing that they're obviously kind of counting down to. Or, funnily enough, they land on this other option, which we've had a few times. Which, oh, you just decide. You just decide. The patient waiting. They've gone left. They've gone right. They've gone up. They've gone down. They've gone all of that. Just cash. Split it down. Oh, you just decide. You get that sometimes as well. That willingness to, and oh, you know, you know what will be good for me. I just want everything. You know, you decide kind of thing. We get that every now and then. They're only just starting to get their heads around the patient side of the waiting. But nevertheless, the waiting period is a redemptive process. It's this opportunity to realign things and fix things up. Desires are orientated away from everything now to some more thoughtful possibilities. Even at times, relinquishing their desires and their choices to mum and dad, saying, well, you, you know what's best. You kind of figure it out. As adults, we're not really too different I don't know if you've ever had something go down in life that was less than ideal. And we pray, God, just do this, God, and do this, God, and God, do this. And man, smite that person, double smite that person. That would be fantastic. Amen. And you go to bed and you're like, yes. And then you wake up the next day and you're like, oh, maybe God, do this and this. And maybe just the half smiting will be fine. It's not their fault totally kind of thing. And you just change your prayers. And the next day you kind of wake up. You're actually like, God, it's just... They're all right, I forgive them. Maybe could you help do this kind of thing? And then like the last, you know, four days, five days later, maybe a week later, you're like, God, you just do what you want to do in this situation kind of thing. Because as we learn to wait on the Lord, as we learn to be patient, as we learn to be still, we discover that our first response is not always the best response. Our first request is not always the right request, the wholesome request, the flourishing request. Lightning bolts is always first on the list. What do you want for Christmas? Lightning bolts, zap them. A little bit later, oh, maybe forgiveness, that'll be all right. This takes a while to get there, kind of thing. We're not too different. The time delay is important. Reorientates our hearts. It's good for us. Waiting is good for us. Especially enforced waiting. Enforced waiting is good for us. 
divests us of that ability to control the situation, to exert power. You, you have to wait. Some of you, the more senior you are in a role or a position or a job or a company or something, probably don't have to wait very often. Normally got all the power, all the control, can get things done when you want. Then suddenly you find yourself in a context where you have to wait. It can be frustrating, disorientating, disempowering. I've learned to sit with the agitation of lack, and control, of, lack of control. I feel, the, I feel the angst of not being able to control the situation. I like to control situations. I like to not be in situations where I can't control them. The angst that comes with being out of control. Sitting in a waiting room. Nothing you can do could speed it up. Just sitting there waiting. You begin to notice the angst in others as they're sitting there waiting as well. I, start, I enjoy it now. I, I like it. I just take a, a deep breath. Slow down, Joseph. Just breathe. It's all right. You see that guy that gets up and keeps harassing the receptionist? You're like, ah, don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. Him harassing the receptionist is not speeding anything up. And of anything I know about organisations, she's probably saying, I'm sorry, sir, we can't help you, and bumps him down the list when other people get put through. Just don't be that guy. Just take a deep breath. Waiting. I've come to enjoy waiting rooms. The longer I wait, the better. Not because I don't have things I need to do, not because I don't have things I need to get to and get on to, but we're so used in our lives to getting onto the things that we need to do, to doing the next thing, to moving along, that when you find yourself in this place of enforced waiting, you're kind of like, it's an exercise in letting go. It's an exercise in just being still. Pay attention to my breathing, pay attention to the people around me. Pay attention to that still, small voice of the Holy Spirit, because we're so inclined to go and go and go. I've learned to enjoy it. I've learned to enjoy watching the other people that aren't enjoying it. I, I enjoy that too. But God will forgive me for that, maybe. Practice being present to the moment. And you begin to be realigned in this place of waiting. That's the invitation at Advent. That's why we need Advent. We need the four weeks that count down to Christmas. Not to extend Christmas out and make Christmas go for even longer. Christmas starts on Christmas Day and goes for 12 days. Commercial side of Christmas has brought all the advertising and the marketing and the tinsel and the things right into the here and now. But in Advent, it's the season of waiting and counting down. We need that season of waiting. To learn to be patient. To be realigned back to the truth that Christ is the reason for the season. But not in just some kind of surface-level cliche sense. You know, reminding ourselves Jesus is the reason for the season. That the, you know, oh, the best present is always presents kind of thing. And uh, don't be consumed by the consumerism at Christmas. And, you know, Christ paid our debts so that we don't have to take up credit card debt at Christmas. Kind of, like, yeah, yeah, cool. All of those little cliches, they're all cool and they're all true. And they're all, like, on the surface level, we want to go yes to all of those things for sure. But Advent invites us to realign ourselves at a deeper level. To explore what it is that we're carrying in the deep places of our hearts in terms of where we think we will find hope. Where we think we'll find peace. Where we think we'll find joy. Where we think we'll find love. 
to kind of strip back the exterior stuff and look deeper and go, at the core of my being, what am I putting my hope in? What am I waiting for? What am I expecting? What am I counting down to? Hope, peace, joy, love. They're, they're not just the candles of the Advent wreath. They're, they're things, there's a universal hunger within humanity for these kinds of things. To know these realities as lived experiences. Not just pretty candles, but lived experiences in our lives. Where at the core of my being do I think I'm going to find that? Where, where will I find that? And it's easy to get sucked into the enchanted Turkish delight. It'll be the holiday. The holiday will be the thing that fixes it all. And the holiday's awesome. And the holiday's helpful. And we don't want to say no to holidays. But you get two weeks back into the start of the next year and you're like, I could really do with a holiday. Because it doesn't fix the stuff at the core of our being. That has to be realigned in Christ. So we ask ourselves those questions in these four weeks leading into Christmas. Like I said, we know what the right answer is if we have to pass the Sunday school test. But the invitation is to wait patiently and explore the deeper places of our heart. Because the principalities and powers, they offer all sorts of pathways to hope and peace and joy and love. More sex, more money, better borders, higher walls, stronger armies, faster internet, referendums, lower taxes, higher taxes, more free time, a wider variety of viewing choices, free markets or regulated markets, better interest rates, your own home, a second home, the right outfit, more Instagram followers, deferred payments, a renewed relationship, ah, a renewed relationship, a new relationship. The perfect Christmas, and so on and so on. You watch these Christmas movies with the perfect Christmas. Principalities and powers, they offer all sorts of promises in regards to what will lead to love and hope and joy and peace. But it's quite possible we're gobbling up some of these ideologies as fast as Edmund is gobbling up Turkish delight. But we've been sold false promises masquerading as a sure path to hope and peace and joy and all these kinds of things, but we're under the thumb without even realising it. Under the thumb without even realising it. It'll always be winter and Christmas will never come when we put our hope in those kinds of ideologies. So during Advent, we wait on the Lord. We say, where does my help come from? It comes from the maker of the heavens and the earth. The one who comes counterintuitively not in power but in humility this baby born in a stable and laid in a manger and there's cows and we sing these songs and it's not a principality in power it's this baby that is somehow the true and rightful king and we're asked to reorientate our lives around that to lean into that mystery realign our thinking back to the one who is hope and peace and joy and love So we have to know the reason for the season. And I'm not referring to Christmas. The reason for the season of Advent. Why do we have this four weeks? To prepare our hearts. To realign our hearts. To examine the hopes we carry in the deep places. And ask ourselves, is, am I really going to find satisfaction in those things? Alright, let's stand. We'll close in prayer this morning. I don't have another passage of... Narnia to read today, I'm sorry. 
Last week, Romeo, Romeo said, just less preaching stuff, Dad, and more reading the story. <laughs> oh, thanks, mate. Let me pray for you. As you go this morning, may your eyes be open to the enchanted Turkish delight that is peddled on every street corner, in every product promotion, in every politician's fresh new announcement and pitch. So much is promised, sure satisfaction, so easy to consume. Be aware, though, it's normally us that are being consumed. As you go this morning, may you go with a fresh willingness to slow down, to pause and to wait patiently. And in your waiting to be realigned to Christ Jesus, the reason for the season, our great promise of hope and peace and joy and love. And as you go this morning, may the eyes of your heart be open to the mystery, welcome, love and wonder of Christmas that is breaking out all around you. And that is named in Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in Christ. And may you know in this season, the love of God, the life of Christ and the peace of the Holy Spirit is your own. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, grace and peace, my brothers and sisters. Enjoy your Sunday.